In the first 12 verses of the book of Job, we are given insight into the character of three persons here, of Job, of God, and of Satan, the accuser. And what we find is that Job is a man of integrity. He is blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. We see of God that God is one who is the creator, who delights in his creatures and his creation. And then we find Satan, the accuser. He is the cynic who thinks he understands everything better than anyone else does, that he sees the truth behind the facade of reality, that he alone understands. And so he questions Job's character and he questions God's character. He sees this, this character on each as merely a front, that it's not really true. He argues that Job fears God because Job gets benefits from God. As I mentioned in Sunday school, sort of a quid pro quo. God blesses him, so Job fears him, and, and he, that's why things happen that way. He also insists that God only delights in Job because he has created an ideal situation for Job so that Job loves him and worships him, but, but God has sort of rigged the game uh, in his own favor. And as we've seen the past couple weeks, that although God is the creator, he is the governor of the universe, he is open to challenge, and that is why, and Sandra asked in Sunday school, why is Satan, the epitome of evil, why is he there in the presence of God, uh, basically challenging God? We see that God is open to challenge, that he has given his creatures freedom to raise questions and even to rebel. God is not threatened by evil, by our sinfulness. And so when Satan appears along with the sons of God, God doesn't throw him out. God doesn't say you have no place here. Rather, uh, he asks him, you know, what, what, have you been do- what have you been up to? And thus begins the dialogue that sets in motion uh, the events that we find in these chapters. God allows Job, or allows Job to be in Satan's hands, that he gives Satan power over Job, but we are told that there is a limit. On the man himself, do not lay a finger. So now, Satan has been given the freedom to do certain things, but within limits. And I think that's really important. We will see this again in chapter 2. Well, beginning in verse number 13, Satan sets out to do his work, and he does it rather well. Let's begin reading in verse 13 and read to the end of the chapter. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. 
It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. It is a remarkable passage of Scripture. In four swift episodes, Satan does his best, or his worst, to devastate Job, and to put Job in a situation where Job will turn and curse God. Because this is Satan. He's the cynic. He knows everything. This is what he has predicted will happen. You'll notice that the passage begins, as did the previous one, one day. <clears throat> We're not given a specific time frame. But it's interesting to note that what happened in heaven between Satan and God is not known here on earth. And so things are going along, progressing here on earth. No one is aware of this agreement between God and Satan. The atmosphere is peaceful. As we saw, Job's seven sons and three daughters had a custom of meeting at one of the brothers' houses and they would feast. And have, They were a close family, apparently. They would spend time together. This continues because they're not all in the bomb shelter waiting for Satan to come. They don't know what is going to happen. They don't know about this agreement. And we see, by the way, the way the passage opens, that not only are they feasting, uh, we are given an, an additional thing, that they were drinking wine, which I think adds a note of anticipated joy. It was a good time. And it makes the tragedy that is about to happen all that more sharp, all that more poignant, that something devastating is going to happen. By the way, just to refresh your memory, we were given a catalog list earlier in Job of his possessions. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, uh, 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. Okay. The servants are important because only one servant will survive each episode. From a large number, we go down to four. And so the calamities come. First, the oxen and the donkeys. The oxen are working. That's what they do. The donkeys are grazing. And the Sabaeans attack. They kill the servants. They carry off the animals. The Sabaeans uh, were at this point, as far as we can tell, a Semitic nomadic people. They eventually ended up settling in modern-day Yemen, in the Horn of Africa. Uh, but at this point, they still sort of roamed around. They were from the southern part of Palestine. Um, they trafficked in incense, gold, and precious stones, uh, but at this point, they seem to be a tribe of raiders. And they come in, and they take the 500 yoke of oxen, and they take the 500 donkeys, and they kill all the servants except one. Only one survives. The second episode, the 7,000 sheep. The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants. Uh, it's, it's worth noting, and I, I would want you to, to keep this in your mind, that there's a certain ironic twist here that Satan uses God's fire against God's servant. Again, I think we often think of God and Satan as good and evil and evil has a power all its own that evil can do whatever it wants. No, evil can only do what God allows it to do. And here Satan uses God's fire, which I take to be lightning, why not simply say lightning? I think to make the point 
that Satan is doing what he's doing with God's permission and with God's elements, not simply of his own power. Only one servant survives. Then we have the third incident, the third episode, the 3,000 camels. The Chaldeans divided themselves into three bands and sort of swooped down and killed all the servants except one and took away the camels. The Chaldeans here are the ancestors of what will be the Babylonians later on. Before they settled in modern-day Iraq, they were nomadic like the Sabaeans. They're in the north, the Sabaeans are in the south. And in these three swift episodes, the man we take to be the richest man at that point in human history, in that part of the world, becomes a pauper. He's lost everything. And yet the worst is yet to come. The worst tragedy possible, a Sirocco, a wind from the east, from the desert, sweeps in and strikes the four corners of the house. And all ten of his children are killed. Again, we have something from God's creation. Something that is supposed to be under God's control and is being used to destroy and to bring devastation. Only one servant survives and comes back and tells Job. There are two things I think worth noting about these four episodes. I don't know if you notice it, but they alternate between earthly forces and heavenly forces. You have the Sabaeans from the south, and then you have lightning from the sky. And then you have the Chaldeans from the north, and then you have the desert wind. And even though the desert wind, we'd say, well, that's an earthly force, the, the implication is that it is of divine origin. And then with the four, uh, it might be stretching it a bit, but it's been argued that it, they represent the four, the four points on the compass. Sabaeans from the south, Chaldeans to the north, the lightning from the west, and that we're guessing on, but the desert wind comes from the east. From heaven, from earth, from all four corners, Job catches it from everything. As I said, Satan does his work and he does it very well. At this point, and I don't know exactly how to do this, I would need your help. I think we need to take some time and try to put ourselves in Job's place. Not in some type of psychological manipulation. But if you've experienced the loss of possessions or of valuables or of something you wanted. For myself, I think of a job that I wanted particularly well and I did not get something that I thought was mine and I lost. Or if you've experienced the loss of a loved one. Imagine losing ten of the closest people to you. Let's not simply read this as a story. Let's try to put ourselves in Job's place. I don't know that we can adequately do so, but we should try to understand the devastation of so much loss. And I think we have to ask ourselves, how would I respond? How would I respond to losing everything and everyone? Well, how does Job respond? Well, his response, again, reveals his character. We're told in the first five verses of the book what type of a man he was. 
Now again we find what type of man he was. And he is consistent in his character. When he gets this word, he gets up. He tore his robe and shaved his head. That is, Job acknowledged the reality of his losses. Now, oftentimes people read verse number 21. You know, the Lord is given, the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's sort of a fatalistic, well, you know, you know, it's kismet, what can you say? Let's just, let's go on with whatever is next. No, Job was devastated by this loss. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that. We should not be unaffected by loss. But we should, I think, follow Job's example and be restrained and stay within certain bounds. We are not to be swallowed up by the loss, by the devastation. We are not to give up all hope. Rather, we should seek to fight our passions and bring them in conformity with that which glorifies God. We note that Job is almost overcome with his grief. But he doesn't put on a mask to say, I'm fine. Everything's fine. You know, God gave me these kids and now he's taken them away. I'm fine. He is in many ways devastated by this loss. He tears his clothes. He shaves his head. Both of these are expressions of sorrow in the ancient world. He wants to show his anguish and that he's not happy about this. He's not happy about this. He's not somehow trying to make it seem like he's sad or to remind himself, oh, I need to be sad. Oh, why are my clothes? Oh, I'm supposed to be sad. He is devastated by the loss. But he acts consciously, rationally, in according with the custom of that time and that place. Not out of control, not impetuously, which is really quite remarkable. Just a side note, parenthetically, you may remember that according to Mosaic law, the Jews were forbidden to shave their heads when someone died. That was something that pagans did. That was something that non-Jews did. But Jews were not allowed to do it. Uh, Deuteronomy 14.1 You are the children of the Lord your God. Do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead. But we've noted earlier in this series, Job was not a Jew. He's not a Hebrew. He's not of the people of Israel. He was not one of the people of the covenant. But he was a servant of God. And he does what is allowed by his custom, custom of that time. He does so consciously. He does so under control. He has not lost control. But he is devastated by the loss. And I, I think it's hard to imagine the balance because... If you're under control, then, oh, you don't really feel the pain. Or if you feel the pain, then you, then you lose all control. No, Job does both. And then, in what to me is quite staggering and, and almost unimaginable, he fell to the ground in worship. He fell down before God in humility. I think at a time of loss... God is not always our first thought. And when he is, it isn't always, uh, I need to humble myself before God. Oftentimes it's, why did this happen? Why did you allow this to happen? Job humbles himself before God. 
And it's not without conscious thought or words, because we have in the next verse his statement, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Job acknowledges in the midst of unimaginable loss and sorrow that God is in control of all aspects of life, in calmness, in calamity, in prosperity, in poverty, in life, in death. God is in control. And Job admits that everything he has has come from God. All his possessions, his sons, his daughters, they came from God. And as such, they belong to God. Because when you think about it, we come into this world and God gives us things. And then we leave this world and the things stay behind. In Job's case, rather than waiting for Job to leave this world for the things to be taken, God takes them early. But Job acknowledges, this is God's right. I came into the world with nothing, and when I leave this world, I will leave with nothing. So, had he not lost his children, had he not lost all his possessions, at his death, he would have lost his children, and he would have lost his possessions. The timetable simply been moved up, and he's lost them not at death, but in the midst of life. Job acknowledges that God has a perfect right to do these things. And what God did in no way canceled out Job's duty to worship and praise God. Then we read amazingly at the end of the chapter, In all this Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Job did not take any action to cope with the loss that would have in fact been a curse against God or would have weakened his faith in God. It is worth noting that in his prosperity, Job did not forget God. In his, in his poverty, Job does not forget God. It has been said that we are more likely to sin in prosperity than in poverty. Job, in prosperity and in poverty, continues in his faith in God. He has, if you wish, passed the test. But Satan is not finished. And so, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, we have now the second challenge. And follow along, if you would, as I read. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. On, the se- on another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. The second challenge is much like the first. The language is almost identical. Um, I think the character of the three people involved is reinforced. Um, It starts out by saying, on another day. I don't know if you've thought about this, but 
I think oftentimes because we read the book of Job through, you read chapter one, you read chapter two, we sort of assume that these four terrible things happen and then Satan went back to heaven to give a report and, and then the second challenge. We don't know that. It may, in fact, have been a long period of time between losing everything, losing his family, and when the second challenge happens. The sons of God, the angels come to God. This is almost repetition word for word for what we find in chapter one. Again, Satan is among them. As I told you, the word also implies that he doesn't belong there, that he's an intruder. And again, the Lord begins the dialogue with a question. It is the grace of God. He who knows all things, who knows our hearts, who could say, I know exactly what you've been up to. Ask Satan, where have you come from? What have you been up to? And Satan replies again, the curse of Cain, the wanderer. He's been roaming all over the face of the earth. And God, again, asks him another question. The same question he did in the first scene. Have you considered my servant Job? And again, he tells him that he is a man who is blameless and upright, someone who fears God and shuns evil. But now he says he maintains his integrity. You've put him through the fire. He still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. God takes full and personal responsibility for the tragedies that have happened to Job. He doesn't give the authority to Satan to say, Satan, this is what you did. God is in control. He accepts responsibility for this. And this is critical because when everything is said and done, when we get to the end of the book of Job, we're not going to read about Satan anymore. At no point after chapter two are we going to read about Satan anymore. Job doesn't even know that Satan is involved. This is about God and God alone acting in the life of Job. Again, God's character is reinforced as one who delights in this amazing creature, this man, Job, who, in spite of all that he has lost, maintains integrity in the face of tragedy. But Satan is the cynic. He knows better. He knows better than God. God is pleased. Look at this amazing man. And Satan's like, oh, you don't really know the truth. I know the truth. The truth is, you can take away everything a person has, but as long as they have their health, as long as they have their life, they still, they're still okay. If you touch him, if you take away his health, then he will curse you to your face. There is an expression here, skin for skin, which apparently is an ancient proverb. We don't know exactly what it means, if it means... This is only the surface. You know, you're only looking skin deep. You need to go beneath that. Or if he's saying you actually need to afflict him physically, his skin. Uh, the second proverb, I think, is a lot clearer. A man will give all he has for his own life. The, the instinct for survival is very strong in us as human beings. And we can lose everything. But if we're still alive, if we're still surviving, we we're okay. Once things are taken from us, then we might be tempted to curse God. By the way, Satan is a cynic, and a cynic by nature is a self-centered person. It's all about me. And Job, or Satan assumes that Job is like him. 
Satan is self-centered. He assumes that Job is self-centered. So he lost everything, that's fine. Touch the self. Touch the man. Touch who he is. And then he will curse you and die. Strike his flesh and bones. God again delights in his creature. And he says, okay, you may touch him, but you must spare his life. Again, there are limits. One author has referred to Satan as Satan on a chain. Satan is not free to do what he wants. He can only do what God allows. And again, Satan does his job very well. If you look in verse number seven. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. We're not exactly sure what Job had. Some translations say that he was covered with boils from the sole of his feet to the top of his head. Some people have suggested it was a form of leprosy. It is intriguing. As we go through the book, different symptoms of his condition come out in in various uh, speeches. We will see the Lord willing next week that he is so disfigured that his friends do not recognize him. In chapter 7, we are told that the sores he has, he has ulcers on his skin that maggots are growing in. Uh, He is not able to sleep. When he does sleep, he has nightmares. Uh, He he is depressed. He has, uh, I think, mental and psychological depression. He has fever. He struggles with fever a lot. We're told in chapter 30. And that at a certain point, his skin has begun to blacken and to peel off. Which... Some people have said sort of indicates leprosy. I would suggest that it's not actually one disease or one condition, but a mixture of various things. That Satan is, I mean, if he hits him from the four corners of the compass for his possessions and children, I think he's hitting him with everything he has, not simply one disease, but everything that he can throw at him. And Job responds by sitting among the ashes. In the ancient world, uh, when you lived in a city, People would take the garbage outside the city wall. They would take the dung uh, from their bathrooms. They would take them, put them outside the wall, and then they would burn them. That was known as the ash heap. That's where lepers lived. That's where people who were outcasts, who had contagious diseases or unexplained physical condition, that's where they were put. And that's where Job takes himself. He goes outside and he sits in the midst of the ash heap. And it represents, I think, true humiliation. He's not only lost all he possessed in his family, he's now lost his health as well. From being one of the greatest men in the East, he is now someone who sits in the midst of ashes. And he takes broken pottery and scrapes himself. And I'm not sure what this indicates. Some people said that it might be that he was scraping off scabs. Uh, or if you've ever had boils, if he has boils, that... Somehow he's trying to get the head of the boil to come out. Some have suggested that he's, he is itching uh, just from all the thing that's going on. Uh, some have suggested that he's actually cutting his flesh as a sign of sorrow. Again, something forbidden by the law as is shaving the head. But Job doesn't belong to the Jews, and so maybe he is following the custom of his place. But there's one more character that we need to know about before Job's friends come into the scene. 
or onto the scene, and that is Job's wife. Look, if you would, at verse number 9, verses 9 and 10. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Enter the wife, who has, through church history, been much maligned. It's been called the second Eve, trying to tempt her husband to do something he should not do. Calvin, John Calvin, called her the embodiment of Satan. Augustine referred to her as the devil's advocate. But I think maybe we need to back off a bit and reconsider such a harsh evaluation of this woman. Those of you who are married know that the bond between husband and wife, the identification between the two, is very strong. When I was courting my wife, uh, I grew up in a different part of the Philippines, and it, it dawned on me that I never remembered hearing any terms of affection among Ilocano-speaking people. Ilocano is where I speak. And, you know, the Tagalogs have all these different endearments, you know, all these different words. And among Ilocanos, we don't have any. And, of course, I might explain something about Ilocanos, but that's a different story. Lonnie's mom is Ilocano. And so one day I called her. I said, Mama, what, what term of affection can I use in Ilocano for this woman that I'm courting? And she said, you know, I don't think we have any. She said, but there is one, Bianco. It means my life. Ooh, that's pretty intense. I think that describes the bond between a husband and a wife. You are my life. And she has had to sit there and watch Job go through this. He wasn't the only one who lost ten children. She did too. She lost the possessions like he did. But beyond that, now she sees her life, her husband, just being devastated by whatever physical ailment that Satan had brought on him. I think she can't stand to see it anymore. She cannot stand to see this man she loves go through this. And so she tells Job, what, you're going to still keep your integrity? You're going to still fear God and worship God? Curse God and die. Why curse God? Because she's thinking, if you curse God, God's going to kill you. Then you get it over with. No more suffering, no more pain. Just, as far as we know, they didn't talk about heaven or hell at that point in human history. You know, when you die, it was the end of the story. Just get the story over with. I, I can't stand to see you suffering. Curse God and die. But Job tells her this is foolishness. And he says amazingly, Shall, or he asked her, shall we accept good from God and not accept trouble? But our hands are only open for God to give us the things we like and not the things we don't like. Job retained his faith in the Almighty. And once again, Satan is foiled. But I have to tell you that I think in some ways, I'm less satisfied I'm less at peace than Job was. Because I have some questions. Where is God's justice? Did God allow, did he really allow this to happen? What is God doing in all of this situation? And what good does it do? 
to have faith in God if this can happen to you? What good does faith do you if, if something as devastating as this can happen to you? In a book called A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis wrote about the suffering and the, di- the death of his wife. Uh, she died of cancer. And he writes of his struggle with God, whom at one point in the, in the, on, in the proceedings referred to God as the cosmic sadist, or sadist, someone who delights in seeing other people suffer. And Lewis wrote, Talk to me about the truth of religion, and I'll listen gladly. Talk to me about the duty of religion, and I'll listen submissively. But don't come talking to me about the consolations of religion, or I'll suspect you don't understand. If we think that faith is something that gives us consolation, that helps us to understand everything that's going on, I think we've really misunderstood. See, Job doesn't get to look behind the curtain. We get to see about God and Satan and this whole conversation that took place. So we know more than Job. And yet I think we have as many, if not more, questions than Job would about this situation. God has revealed himself. He has disclosed himself in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Theologically, if you wish, in terms of revelation, we know so much more than Job did. And yet there is much that we do not understand. There is much that is hidden to us. Moses wrote so many centuries ago, the secret things belong to God. And faith is trusting God in the dark. On some level, we can only watch as Job struggles. On another level, we join in the struggle as we seek to make sense of it. As we seek to understand who is this God that we worship that would allow this to happen. I think we understand that we need to understand we're not God we will never fully comprehend I think one of the great lessons from the book of Job is it strips away this facade we have of we think we've got God figured out oh we understand God you pray he gives you do something wrong he hits you, you know, we've got this we think we've got it all figured out and we read the book of Job and it's like Who is this God? Abraham had a similar experience when the Lord Jesus appeared to him and said, Sodom and Gomorrah, I'm going to destroy them. Abraham left family. He left his home country based on a promise that he would have a son. For 25 years, God had not fulfilled this promise. And suddenly God appears to him and says, I'm going to destroy all those people. And Abraham was like, wait a minute. This is the God I left home for? This is the God I've been a stranger here for 25? I've been waiting 25 years. And this God finally shows up. And what does he tell me? He's going to kill a bunch of people. I think if we are comfortable with God, we do not understand God. I don't think we do fully anyway, but... If we have deluded ourselves into being comfortable, then we've really missed something important.
but we should follow Job's example to accept both good and trouble as coming from God. There may be secondary agents. Satan may be the one doing it to Job. It may be a co-worker at work, political agenda, who cuts us off from certain things. It may be a person for another reason doing something bad. But ultimately, these things come from God. And we need to accept both the good and the trouble as coming from God. The last night that Jesus was alive, I think he struggled with this in the Garden of Gethsemane. The time has come when he accepts the trouble. He's accepted the good. He's been able to heal people, feed thousands. He's been able to teach with great power. This is something he received from God. Now the hands are still there. It's time to receive the trouble, the betrayal, the sufferings, the death. It's not easy. But because Christ did it, today we remember his death and his resurrection and the salvation that is possible for us. Let's pray together. Father, we call you Father because Jesus has revealed you to us as Father. So when we say that word, we have certain preconceptions, certain ideas. When you tell us that you love us, we we have certain ideas of what that means and how you should act. And we come to this passage of Job. And as amazed as we are at Job's great faith, we are also dismayed by the fact that you let this happen. May each of us learn from the words of Job. We came into this world with nothing in terms of material possessions. We will leave with nothing. You give us what we have, you have the right to take it away. That our open hands receive not only good things from you, but sometimes trouble. We do not always understand why. But you do. And we are to trust you. In some ways, all these centuries later, it's still somewhat difficult to understand why your son had to die. Couldn't you have figured out something a little less painless or bloody? No suffering. We still don't fully comprehend all these years later. But we thank you for the example of Jesus and his willingness to obey you, to accept from you both the good and the trouble. And because he did, we have received from you eternal life. May we remember this as we remember his death today. I pray in Jesus' name.